Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as our special guest speaker delivers this week's message. Welcome to the start of Holy Week. We know today by a few names. The start of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, the beginning of Jesus' Passion. But I submit to you that if you're a believer, then every week you live and have Jesus in your heart is a holy week. While we're at it, the passion of Jesus really started when he was born of Mary. Or we can go back further still and say it started with Adam when he said, oh good, fruit for dinner. That's where the journey to Golgotha started. And believe me, through my sin, I've been pushing Jesus to that cross the whole time. That's not what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. I want us to look at why this is called Palm Sunday. What happened? And how did Jesus react to it all? Join me, please, as we travel back 2,000 years and look in on Jesus and the apostles. Please open your Bibles to Luke 19. We'll be reading from verses 28 to 44. If you're using the Seatback Bibles, that would be page 878 and 879. And by the way, if you're in need of a Bible, please help yourself to that one that's in the seat in front of you. Take it as our gift to you. No one should be without the Word of God. If you're able, I ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 19, verses 28 and following. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethanage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near and, this, this, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, 
had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thank you. You may be seated. The Bible is an interesting book, to say the least. In fact, 66 interesting books divided into the New and the Old Testaments. It's all different books, all speaking directly into a singular account in history. It was written in three languages over three different continents. There are about 611 thousand words in scripture when we consider the original languages. The books are not arranged in chronological order, which can be somewhat confusing to new Christians. The longest book is Jeremiah, while the shortest is 3 John. This one was new to me. There are about 185 songs in scripture. The longest verse is Ruth chapter 8 verse 9. While the shortest is John 11.35, which says, Jesus wept. That's where we're going to stop our exploration of Bible trivia this morning. And this is an interesting phrase, Jesus wept. When we're looking at this as the shortest verse, we are, of course, referring to John 11.35, when Jesus was seen weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. There, Jesus is not weeping for Lazarus. No, he's weeping for us. And the fact that we just don't understand what's about to happen. Here stands the Lord of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, the God-man who can undo death with a thought. And we're sad that our friend Lazarus is in a tomb. Jesus knows that in a matter of moments, Lazarus will be back among the living. He weeps for the failure of the people to understand this. He's not crying because he misses his friend. He's crying because we just don't get it. This is almost the same phrase that we see in our verses today. Look with me at verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is where we're going to spend our time breaking open. But to get there, we have some work to do. So, where are we? It's a week before Passover. You remember the last time I was up here, I showed you how Jesus was a better Passover sacrifice. And now I'm back, and it's Palm Sunday. And I'm starting to feel a little bit like the special event preacher. And it's okay with me, as long as I get to preach the word. really don't care what you call me. So it's Palm Sunday, and even now, centuries later, you can feel that it's different. There's a, something special coming, and we know it. 
Easter, right down the road, there's an impending explosion of joy in the church. And if there's not, please find you a new church. The biblical events of Palm Sunday are different. Look with me at how different this account is from the other accounts of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus and a large group of disciples were at Bethany. Now, as I mentioned, this is where just a short time ago, Lazarus was raised from the tomb. This miracle is still fresh in the minds of the people. Lazarus might even be among the disciples. He might even be one of the two disciples that were sent to go get the cult. I don't know. Fun to think about, though. So Jesus gets to town, and what does he do? He sends two of his guys into town to get a young cult who's not yet been ridden. This is important, and it's different. It's important because Jesus is about to ride into town like a boss, or really like a king. Only a king who already owns the land would arrive at a city this way. A visiting king would ride a horse and have an entourage. A conquering king would be riding a war horse or a stallion, like we see Jesus riding in Revelation 19.11, which says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness... He judges and makes war. This is how a conquering king comes into a city. Not on a donkey. But this is still hugely different for Jesus. Normally we see Jesus withdrawing from the public. We see him go off a little and pray in communion with his father by himself, alone. He tells some of those that he's healed to go and tell no one. Jesus is not a limelight kind of guy. But now, now he has two of his guys going into town to get him a donkey. He could not be more on display than riding into town on a donkey. His mode of transport is different. He normally walks everywhere he needs to get to, including cross water, like in Matthew 14. Jesus is, without doubt, a hiker. But not now. Not today. Now, he's going to ride into the city. And not just ride into the city, but to do it in a way that sends the clear message that this is all his Already. He's not coming to conquer the city because the city, as well as everything else in creation, is already his. He is announcing himself as the king owner of Jerusalem. This is different. Jesus normally shies away from titles, not anymore. This time, he's proclaiming his title. Not just by riding a donkey, but by through his foreknowledge as God incarnate. 
How did he know the Colt was going to be in town? How did he know what to have said to the Colt's owner? He's God. That's how. This all happens by his design, by his decree. In his foreknowledge of all events, he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jerusalem at this time is normally filled with three things. Good, devout Jews. The men of the Roman legion, remember, they're an occupying force in Jerusalem. And Gentiles, or everybody else. But this is the week of Passover. The city is overflowing with good, upright Jews who have made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. These are good, religious people who knew the prophecy. We will see later that they don't make the connection, but they know they have been trained on these verses. Verse 39 shows us that some of the Pharisees make the connection. They understand exactly what Jesus is doing and the message that he's sending. This is why they tell Jesus to silence his followers. The people lining the Jesus parade route are throwing palm branches and their cloaks on the ground. What's with all the palm and the cloaks? Come back to that in a minute. What are the people yelling? They're yelling, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The only difference here between this account and the other three accounts in the Gospels is that Luke doesn't record the use of the word Hosanna. It doesn't change what's going on here. The people see and acknowledge their king. In their praise of God, they are reciting Psalm 118, verse 26, which reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This psalm is an exaltation to God for all the mighty works that he has done. And remember, we're told in verse 37 of our text that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all his mighty works. Keep this in mind as we move forward. The crowd is praising Jesus, but not based on who he is. Rather, based on what he has done. Some of the Pharisees have a better understanding of what's going on, and they tell Jesus to rebuke his students. Jesus tells them that if the crowd were silent, the very stones would cry out. Two important things are happening here. One is a very cool call out to Luke 3.8 
where John the Baptist tells the crowd, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The other thing that's happening here is that Jesus is again expressing his godhood. We saw it when through his foreknowledge he knew about the cult that he was riding on. Like we asked earlier, how did he know the cult would be there? How did he know what needed to be said to the cult's owner? Was it just good luck? Was it providence? Or was Jesus setting up the details? What about the details in your life? Are there times that you just consider yourself lucky? Providence of God plays itself out in a million little ways in the course of one of our days. To see it, we have to be looking. When we're looking, we can see God at work. When we're paying attention, we see God exercising his will over our lives. But we have to be looking. Okay, let's get back to Jerusalem. We see Jesus expressing his godhood again and his dominion over all things, including rocks. As the sovereign God of the universe, if he wants the rocks to sing out his praises, you better believe them rocks would get to singing. This whole exchange about rocks is not pointing to the rocks. It points to God and the person of Jesus Christ. There is nothing impossible for him. Whether it's making inanimate objects sing his praises or giving salvation to a sinner like me, like you, he can do it all. Let's have a quick look at the cloaks and the palm fronds, and then we can move on. Why would they spread their cloaks out on the donkey and on the road? To answer that question, we need to look at 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. That says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu, is king. Removing your outermost garment and placing it under you was a way of acknowledging someone as king. By Jesus' disciples spreading their cloaks on the donkey and along the parade route and the rest of the crowd following suit, they are publicly proclaiming Jesus as king. The palm, on the other hand, was integral to the Jews at several festivals. By waving and placing the palms on the road, they are acknowledging Jesus' lordship over their festivals. Hence, Palm Sunday. So we see how this entire event that opens the Passion Week is designed to set Christ above all things and to worship him. As king, yes, but as God. Before we move on, I'd like to end our look back at the Jesus parade by paying careful attention to verse 37b, where we find 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were joyful. In fact, the whole multitude began rejoicing and praising with loud voices. They were no longer the quiet, unassuming followers that somewhat kind of bothered Rome. Now, there were a loud, raucous crowd dancing in the streets, shouting, Hosanna, save us. This is different. Jesus is no longer on a down low. I'll tell you what's not different. Signs and wonders. Jesus has spent his ministerial life performing great miracles, like the feeding of the masses, and small miracles, like knowing what to say to the owner of a donkey you're about to borrow. In fact, he's done so many miracles that the Gospel of John tells us, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's not hard to understand why some of the crowd are focused on only what Jesus has done. It may be because he's done so much that some people get caught up with the result rather than who's doing it. Then Luke does something interesting and different. Something not done in the other Gospels. Luke takes a step back to before Jesus entered the city. And he tells us, Luke does, that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. We don't see Jesus crying very often. When we do, it's pretty significant. John 11, as we see Jesus weeping by the tomb of Lazarus, it's not for Lazarus that he weeps. Why would he weep for his friend? He knows that in a few minutes, Lazarus will be standing next to him. He's weeping for the people around him who don't understand that. Let's remind ourselves very quickly what's going on here. Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you, your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus finds himself again weeping over a people that just don't get it. Remember, if you will, that they are celebrating all the wondrous things that Jesus has done and is doing. Not who he is or why he's doing these things. Jesus truly feels for and cares about the lost. 
Think about this for a minute. Jesus knows exactly what this city is going to do to him in the coming days. And he still cares about them. He's fully aware that in just four days, he'll be turned over to a Gentile court to be the sin offering for the world. And he still finds room in his heart to weep over the city. I use terms like elect, saved, unsaved. And I sometimes forget that there are people connected to these words. Jesus never forgets. Saved or unsaved, Jesus knows them all. When we preach, we're told to make sure you can find Jesus in the text. Well, there he is, standing right outside the city, crying for me. Even 2,000 years ago, he knew that there would be times that I fail. And he knew that there would be times that I just don't get it. Jesus is crying for the unsaved in the city, but he's crying for the saved as well. Although, not for the reasons that you might be thinking. Verse 42 B, second half of the verse. Jesus says that, but now they're hidden from your eyes. What's hidden from their eyes? The way for peace is hidden from their eyes. That way for peace is that Christ is the Lord. That's the part that they're missing. And because they're missing that crucial part of information, in the next two verses, Jesus is casting judgment on them. And a profound judgment it is. He judges the city unredeemable. And he calls forth a curse, total destruction. The people of the city were not praising Jesus as the coming king. They were praising his accomplishments. We see it in our verses when they say all the mighty works that they had seen. There's little in their worship that speaks to Jesus' godhood. And he's giving them all the right clues. If they had journeyed to Jerusalem, which they had, there's a strong possibility that these are well-brought-up, well-schooled, well-taught Jews. And if they live in the city or the surrounding area, They've most likely encountered Jesus and his teachings over the past few years. Jesus is weeping for them because they have been trained and they should know the signs that he's giving them. When he says that now they were hidden from your eyes, it's not that God hid anything while they were learning the scriptures, they refused to learn. It was being hidden from them by a supernatural power and by their own ignorance. And now it's too late. Jesus is not weeping over the lost because of anything he did or didn't do. 
He's lamenting the loss of a generation because they refused to see. They refused to accept and understand the illumination of the Scripture. The term for this, when God hides his word or hides the meaning of his words, is called divine agency. And we've seen it before. We've seen it in Luke 18. When the time for Jesus' passion is hidden from the disciples. The verse says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. With the apostles, it was ordained that they should not know. With Jerusalem, the knowledge was withheld after a time because they refused to learn. So what's the point? Jesus tells them that they will be destroyed because of this. They will be destroyed because, as our last verse tells us, better, because, as our last verse tells us, they did not know the time of the visitation. What visitation is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about the visitation of God to the great city, Jerusalem. Well, when did that happen? Right now, he's about to ride into the city, fulfilling at least two Old Testament prophecies by doing so. But because they don't see this as a visit, as the visit by God that it is, Jesus calls down a curse upon them. When God visits a location in Scripture, it's for one of two reasons. He's either going to deliver mercy or he's going to deliver judgment. Sometimes both. But in this case, it's judgment. It's judgment because with all their learning, with all their faithfulness to their religion, and with all of the respect that they have for the Pharisees and the scribes, with all of that, many of them still didn't see God when he walked among them. This is the one part of the celebration. Maybe not so different. Throughout the time of his ministry, people failed to see that God was walking among them. Not everyone understood or believed his message. Some were ignorant. Others felt threatened. But the ones who did understand and believe, we call followers. In fact, we still call them by that name today. Is that you? Are you a follower of Christ? Or are you standing on the roadside watching God ride by shouting, Hosanna! For his works and wonders in your life. But failing to recognize him as the sovereign Lord of that life. Better yet, are you a follower who stands on the roadside shouting, Hosanna! in praise of God and his righteousness and his holiness. The next visitation we can expect, according to Scripture, Jesus will not be riding on a donkey, 
He'll be on a white stallion. And he'll be coming to deliver his wrath. And his wrath shall be mighty. While we firmly believe love is a powerful attribute of our eternal God, to reject his other attributes, like wrath, means we are not worshiping Yahweh. The Bible is a book of God's wrath. Yes, it also speaks of grace and mercy and salvation and hope. But please, don't look past God's wrath. God makes it clear in his word that his wrath is exactly what happened to Jesus as he fulfilled Ezekiel 7.9 when he said, I will, pour, I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you. Jesus took the full measure of God's wrath so that I, so that we, can have eternal life with him. The church is different as we move ahead to Easter. But should it be? We, the church gathered, should be revitalized, but at the same time, the things that we say and the things that we do and the things that we believe should be the same today as it is any other day of the year. That's why I say that Holy Week should be every week. But we need these special times in a church to be reminded of the things of God. We should use these events as reminders of our lives in Christ. Reminders of our hope as saved Christians, our faith and hope is in Jesus as the Christ. And this removes us out from under God's wrath and brings us to a better understanding of God's will in our lives. When we deny Jesus, we live without hope. We continue under God's wrath. And we feel that pressing us down every day. This is why unbelievers are generally not a happy bunch of people. They probably couldn't articulate it to you, but the reason for their despair is the impending wrath of God. The Holy Spirit makes itself known. And if we choose to ignore it, or worse yet, Quelch the Spirit, like we're warned about in 1 Thessalonians. There will come a time that what the Spirit is trying to illuminate us about will be withheld. Just like what happened to the people in Jerusalem. So what are we going to do about Holy Week? If you're a believer, take advantage of the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And recharge your spiritual life. Take advantage of the Holy Spirit in your life to help you do this. Use the helper 
that God promised believers in John 15 to be a better Christian. Become a better helper to the brethren. Become a better giver to your church. Become a better servant in that church. And perhaps most importantly, become a better evangelizer. Ask for your heart to burn for the lost. And then go out and do something about it. Help bring Jesus out into the world. If you're an unbeliever, the answer of what to do with all this is easy. Believe and be saved. There are men throughout this room, we call them deacons, who would be delighted to help you to understand what believe and be saved means. I beg you to let Jesus into your life today. Right now, there's no time to lose because we don't know the time of God's next visitation. We know it'll happen. We don't know when. And we don't want to be the one Jesus is weeping over because the consequences are severe. Don't crush the spirit. Instead, embrace it. And in doing so, Embrace your life in Christ. Join me as I pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us this morning. We ask you to help us hide your word in our hearts. We may never be without it. Help us to learn from your word that we may better worship you as the holy an all-powerful God that you are. Lord, there are no others that are my strength, my banner. Keep me focused on serving you and bringing you glory for all of my days. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.